Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 3, Theodoric and the Rise and Fall of the Ostrogoth Kingdom. In the last episode, we left the Ostrogoth king Theodoric as the new ruler of Italy, after doing away with our poor old friend Odoasa. Now, to Romanize, the man was yet another uncouth, illiterate barbarian invader. But Theodoric was something more. As a child, he had spent ten years in the court of Constantinople, so he had had the opportunity to see the workings of Roman politics from up close. He had been born in 554, so he was 39 when he deposed Odoasa. After five years of war, the peninsula was on its knees. As if the rampaging armies weren't enough, it had been hit by famine, pestilence and natural calamities. Theodoric's first order of business was to sort out the people he had brought to Italy. In this case, he followed the method that was being used all over Europe by invading Germanic tribes with the local population. He simply decided to give one-third of the land to his Goths and left two-thirds to the local population. This was according to the Roman criterion of hospitalitas that they used with the federati, the allied Germanic tribes. The land in question was in northern and central Italy, but not in the south, perhaps not as inviting as the fertile lands of the Po River Valley and a little bit more difficult to get to. Theodoric didn't go about the business himself. He assigned the task to Petrus Marcellinus Felix Liberius. Let's just call him Liberius for simplicity. He had been a minister to Odoacer as well, and it seems like he did a pretty good job with the task at hand. Keeping on Liberius was decent on Theodoric's part, since Liberius had remained loyal to Odoacer during the war. Liberius chose lands that had belonged to dead or exiled heralds, the people of Odoacer, or that had simply been unowned as much as possible. Thanks also to the work of a series of collaborators called Delegatores. However, this wasn't possible everywhere, and some local landowners indeed lost claim to their lands. More recent studies, however, put forward the assumption that the land didn't actually change hands, and that the old landowners paid a tax to the new Goth owners to keep the land. This seems to have made everybody happy, because the new owners received a nice income without the bother of managing and paying tax for land, and the old owners simply gave to their new landowners the tertia, the tax they had been paying anyway, to more effective and corrupt Roman officials. The delegation of work to Liberius was in line with the division of tasks that would mark Theodoric's reign in general. The administration was left to the Romans and the fighting to the Goths. Indeed, he didn't interfere initially with the existing administrative structure. In fact, he hardly touched the Roman laws at all, setting up a parallel system with a set of laws for the local population 
and a whole separate set of laws for his Goths, keeping for himself such issues of state as foreign affairs. Those laws were regulated by separate courts, so Romans were judged by Roman magistrates and Goths by Goth ones. Theodoric also left the administrative division of the peninsula with 17 provinces, each governed by a presidium, each of which reported to a prefect in the capital Ravenna, who reported to the king. The areas on the borders of the kingdom instead were assigned to Goths who had distinguished themselves in the war against Odoacer and were rewarded with the title of counts. Even the Roman Senate was left intact, as well as its consuls, although by now they were only responsible for feeding and entertaining the plebs of the city. The Romans, or shall we start calling them Italians yet, anyway, the locals had accepted this mix and match reality, having overcome the past counterproductive anti-barbarian prejudice and collaborating with the barbarian rulers, at least for the time being. As well as Liberius, who we mentioned before, there are two other names that we could mention. Now, don't feel obliged to remember them, but for the more diligent or nerdy listeners, these are two important names. Flavius Manius Aurelius Cassiodorus and Ancius Manlius Severinus Boetius. Both men were part of Theodoric's administration, covering important roles, and both had great cultural importance with their writings. The latter, Boethius in particular, had great influence throughout the Middle Ages. His Consolations of Philosophy, in particular written in prison after he had fallen out with the king, was one of the texts that led him to be considered the last great cultural figure of Western antiquity. With the help of men like these and his unusual parallel administrative system in place, Theodoric ushered in a period of peace and stability. We can't really speak of a golden age, but we could speak of a certain reprise. Maybe silver age, or a nice shiny looking age that wasn't quite gold, but definitely felt better than the age before. Theodoric also showed an interest in the most humble people. For example, a woman was once able to get his attention and complained about a trial she was involved in dragging on for three years. Theodoric intervened, forcing the judges involved to complete the trial and then duly had them killed. No messing around with this guy. Theodoric also held great respect for the ancient monuments and did a lot of work to preserve them, proving once again to the local population that not all barbarians came to pillage and destroy. In Ravenna, where he set up court, he erected buildings such as the Battistero degli Ariani, part of an Arian church, and we'll talk more about the Arians in a bit, as well as his own mausoleum just outside the city walls. You can still visit these monuments today and see some of the amazing mosaics from Theodoric's time. Ravenna is really worth a visit, and after that you can pop off to the seaside just a 10-minute drive away. The King of Italy also applied his political intelligence to foreign affairs, using diplomatic ties with the leaders of other barbarian kingdoms 
and sacrificing his sister and daughters to reasons of state with strategic marriage alliances. He was able to set up a network of alliances with Vandals, Visigoths and Burgundians that was aimed at resisting the interference of Byzantine diplomacy from the east and the growing threat of another barbarian kingdom from the west, the Franks. We'll talk a lot more about these interfering Franks when they feature more prominently in our story. Theodoric had also tried to include the Franks in his diplomatic web by marrying the sister of their king, Clovis. The Franks, however, were having none of that wishy-washy, let's-be-friends business. I won't go into too much detail about the politics of the Franks, but with the Battle of Voilet in 507, in which Clovis defeated the Visigoths and killed their king, Alaric II, the Franks proved themselves to be a force to be reckoned with, and really made a mess out of our Theodoric's diplomatic web. This setback, represented by the Frankish victory at Voilet, opened the way to new diplomatic strategies on the part of Byzantium. Until that point, relations between the king and the Eastern Empire had been characterised by a sort of polite ambiguity. The Emperor Zeno had encouraged the Goths to invade Italy, but Zeno had died before Odoacer was definitively defeated, and his successor, Anastasius, took a few years before he recognised Theodoric's position. Although things remained unclear, was he under the authority of Constantinople? Was he independent? Was he king of all Italy, or only of the Goths in Italy and not the Romans? After the Frankish victory of Voilier, Anastasius gave the title of patrician to Clovis, as well as the king of the Burgundians, thus affecting a sort of diplomatic pincer move to isolate the Gothic kingdom. When Anastasius died in 518, it seemed that the new emperor, Justin, would patch things up with Theodoric, but it was not to be. Before we go gallivanting off to see what was going on in Constantinople, let's sort out a few things at home, where the situation was also going down the drain just a tad as the 520s approached. A big domestic issue that plagued the Gothic king was one that had plagued and would plague men and women of power throughout history. Succession. Theodoric had no sons. He did, however, have a daughter, Amalasuntha. Now, the Germanic tradition didn't allow women to succeed to the throne because they were still about a millennium and a half away from discovering that girls are cooler. So, the king married her off to a Visigoth prince, Eutheric. Another issue was the relationship with his Roman subjects. We mentioned that Theodoric's reign had been based on a collaboration between Goths and Romans, and that system had lasted for a good part of his reign. Now, as the 520s rolled around, some cracks started to appear in the foundation, and the old anti-barbarian, and in this case anti-Goth sentiment, started to resurface. Things exploded in the year 523 when a Roman senator was imprisoned under suspicion that he had conspired with the emperor, now Justinian, against the Gothic king. The Roman senator in question, Alboinus, 
was defended by our old acquaintance Boethius, who was also imprisoned. It is in this period that he wrote his Consolation of Philosophy, one of the most important works of the Middle Ages. He later died after undergoing great suffering. These are just a few examples of the growing isolation and subsequent desperation that Theodoric found himself at home and abroad. One good move he made at this time was to set up and reinforce a fleet. He was becoming paranoid. But like the saying says, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Then Theodoric made what legend would have as his biggest boo-boo. So let's go back to the international scene. We said earlier that the new emperor Justin in 518 had started off on friendly terms with Theodoric, but he soon showed himself to be a staunch Orthodox Catholic and started to persecute other Christian faiths as heresies. Among these was the Arian faith which the Goths practiced. Just a quick note on Arianism here. Obviously this topic would require a lot more time and a better scholar and speaker, but it is pertinent here, so let's have a quick look. The term Arianism comes from Arius of Alexandria, who taught this form of Christianity. He lived from around 256 to 336 AD. Basically, the Arians believed that God had existed before Jesus Christ the Son, who had been created at a certain point in time, thus making Jesus subordinate to God, and not one in the same. This is different from the Orthodox Catholic belief of the Holy Trinity. Theodoric was not cool with the persecutions of Arianism by the Byzantines, especially considering that he had been nice to Catholics in Italy. He decided to send the Pope, John I, to Constantinople to intercede. The Pope protested. He was old and weak and may not have survived the journey, but Theodoric insisted. The Pope was sent to ask the Emperor to intercede on three points. 1. To allow the Arians exemption from the Edict Against Heresies. 2. To give Arian churches that had been taken away back. 3. To allow Arians who had converted to Catholicism to convert back. In the end, John made it there and back and even appears to have performed a miracle while in the Imperial City. He accomplished his mission in part being successful on the first two points, but not on the third. But that wasn't enough for the Gothic king. He had by now become suspicious of everyone, and he suspected John of colluding with Justin against him, and the Pope was thrown into prison, where he died. Now once again, we see history cross over into legend. An important thing to remember is that many of the sources we have are ecclesiastical, and these sources tell us that one evening King Theodoric sat down and was served with a lovely codfish. But as he prepared to eat the fish, he looked upon it, and lo and behold, he saw the body of the dead Pope, or possibly that of a senator called Symmachus, anyway, his eyes bloodshot and staring. Terrified by the vision, the king took to his bed and died that very night. How cool does that sound? Let's not ruin it by saying that he probably died of dysentery, or, according to other sources, a stroke. 
Whether it was that or a spooky, ghosty fish, the bottom line was that Theodoric was dead. So, that was the end of the reign of Theodoric. The year was 526, and he had reigned for 33 years. Things didn't end up for him as well as they had started, but he is still remembered as an important player in the construction of a new Romano-Germanic Western world. Indeed, he is one of those few men and women in history who have come to be widely spoken of with the label The Great. Next time, we'll see how things panned out with the succession and also take another peek over at Byzantium, because they were about to get serious again. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. If you want, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com just to say hello, ask a question, or whatever you want. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you'll find our website where you can click through to our social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter. If you're feeling really generous on the site under the support page, you can donate via PayPal or become a Patreon supporter and get access to additional content. Thanks very much again to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sire, your fish. Thank you. Oh, but what is this? Uh, fish? Oh, the horror! The horror! Come on, it can't be that bad. I've been cooking all day. His face! His dead, bloodshot face! Yeah, I mean, it's a fish. It's not supposed to be pretty. Dear Lord, this is a sign. Yeah, a sign your drama queen. Oh, forgive me for I have sinned. It's okay, take it easy, it's just dinner. I must take my gaze from this abomination. That's the worst apology I've ever heard. Away, away, let this vision torment me no longer. Well, thanks very much, weirdo. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com 
That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.